time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Greetings, my friends. How are you today? Welcome to the Financial Physician Podcast, where we talk money, markets, politics, and anything I feel like talking about. Thanks so much for joining us. This is week two of our podcast only show. Uh, I got to tell you, last weekend was a weird weekend for me because I'm so used to preparing for the radio show on Saturday, getting up early Sunday morning and spending two hours in the studio at WOBM. Uh, I finally got my weekends back and I'm real excited about it. And I'm thankful that so many of you that did listen live to the show on uh, WOBM have made the way here to the podcast and the numbers really jumped this week and that's exactly what i expected so thanks so much for joining us for today's show we have a good show for you today lots to talk about the hits keep coming out of the biden's we're going to talk about cocaine in the white house uh probably not the first time uh also we're going to talk about joe biden trying to circumvent the supreme court doing an end around when it comes to student loan forgiveness but we'll do that later in the program as you know we usually open up the show with a money topic. And today I want to talk about getting married and and the financial implications of that. Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. This, I tell you, brother, you can't have one without that's right. Love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage, but money and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. And, you know, we all know that uh, most fights in, in marriages revolve around money. Money is the number one reason why uh, most people uh, get divorced. Uh, and uh, let's talk about getting married, things that you should know about your potential spouse before you go into it and how to form a a partnership because you're entering a lifelong financial partnership. And again, it's one of the most important topics uh, that a a husband and wife talk about. So how about some of these questions that you should ask, financial questions of a potential spouse? Well, the first one is how much debt do you have? And where is this debt? I mean, do you have student loans? How much? Uh, car loans, credit cards, uh, or any other debts. Do you owe your family money? Uh, uh, and, and it's important to go into a marriage knowing that. And this is kind of an uncomfortable, uh, I guess, conversation to have, but it's something that you obviously have to have. How about what is your credit score? Now, I know I sound callous that you should do a credit report on your potential spouse, but you know they could tell you their credit score and they could bring it up for you. It's important to know that because what if you try to get an apartment together, you want to buy a house or you want to borrow money for whatever reason, furniture or whatever, and you find out that you can't get the loan because, or you can't get the, the apartment because one of you has a terrible credit score. Now, a low credit score is, is nothing to really be embarrassed about. I mean, we all make financial mistakes. 
but we have to figure out a strategy to improve it. And sometimes it's just an error on your credit report. Uh, but more often than not, it's that you've, you've missed payments or you borrowed too much money against your credit line. That's called credit utilization. So say you have a credit line on your credit card at $10,000 and it's at 9,000. Well, you got a 90% credit utilization, utilization, I should say. Uh, and that's a bad thing. And that's going to affect your credit score. So you want to start making sure that your payments are always on time. I mean, a two-day late payment on a credit card is going to cost you, number one, a penalty. They're going to charge you. And, and it may affect your credit rating. So it's really important to do that. Another question that you want to ask each other is, would you rather spend money on experiences or things? Right? Some people, you know, they like new cars. You know, they, they like to, to, to buy things. That's what makes them happy. Other people, it's travel. They want to see the world. They want to do things. So it's experiences versus. Now, there's no right or wrong answer to this. It's just good to know going into uh, a marriage, um, you know, what that situation is. What, what do you really want out of life? Do you have to use credit cards to pay your bills? All right. Do you pay them off every month? Um, uh, you want to make sure that uh, there's no bankruptcies in your uh, potential spouse's past. Or any negative financial events. I know this sounds like, you know, we just talked about love and marriage. And, you know, money and marriage is very important. And you have to have this discussion. Now, how about who's going to handle paying the bills? Now, we all have different talents, especially when it comes to money. Uh, maybe uh, the wife, your potential wife, uh, is really good at keeping a good checkbook, making sure all the bills are paid on time. And you're kind of sloppy that way. Well, maybe that would be her job. And maybe you're better off with the investments or the tax situation. Another question, are we going to keep a joint checking account? Or are we going to keep our money separate? Now, this is the big one. This is the big one. And the thing that I've noticed in my 40-year in my career is that nowadays, A, people are getting married later in life. You know, I got married in my mid-20s and my parents got married in their late teens and early 20s. That's just the way it is. Now, many people are waiting until they're in their 30s to get married, and sometimes even later than that. So uh, are we going to keep our money separate, or are we going to pull it together? Because it's no longer me, it's we, and that's the way you got to look at it. Now, this is a very touchy subject for a lot of people, especially when uh, there's a disparity in assets. Uh, one, one potential spouse has, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in investments and the other one has 50,000 in credit cards. Uh, so how do we pool our money together? Well, the first thing we want to see is a joint checking account. I mean, you have to have a joint checking account just for the bills, if nothing else. Now, if you're not sure, uh, if this marriage is going to last, you, you can go a couple of years and keep your money separate, except for that joint checking account. And how are we going to pay the bills? Are we both going to contribute equally? Uh, another thing you want to do is you want to do a budget. Okay. What's our monthly budget going to look like? Like when we get married, you know, maybe, maybe it's going to be better than it is now because maybe we have two separate apartments. We're paying two rents. Uh, and then once we get married, we're only going to need one apartment. So that frees up quite a bit of money. Uh, but maybe, uh, it, it, it could be worse. You don't know. Uh, maybe we lived at home with our parents and now finally we, we, we have a uh, housing costs to deal with. Uh, uh, what's your uh, views on, on cars? Now, I always say, and I said this in my book, and, and I repeat it often because as a financial planner, I've seen this in my career, 
The reason why people have little or no net worth is very simple. Housing and cars. It, it's it. That's it. If you do that right, you'll be fine. If you do it wrong, you're going to have no net worth. So are you the kind of person that uh, always has a car payment? Always wants a new car every soon as soon as the loan's paid or even before that, you know, you want a new car. Or are you the kind of person that once the car is paid off, it's not a big deal to you. They, you'll just keep riding that car until, you know, you start having problems with it. I mean, it, 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 these are things that you have to know about each other. If you have um, one, one spouse is going to have more assets going into the marriage than the other, are we going to have a prenuptial agreement? Boy, nothing, nothing ruins the mood more than bringing up, a, hey, honey, uh, let's do this prenuptial agreement. Uh, but celebrities aren't the only ones who do this. I mean, uh, prenuptial agreements are, are very common these days. Now, in many states, um, the law is that whatever you had before the marriage is going to always be yours. And then anything that's accumulated after the marriage is marital property. Uh, but say you have a business or say you have a, a significant amount of, of real estate and things like that, a prenuptial agreement is probably a smart thing to do. Another question to ask your potential spouse or your fiance is, do you want children? <laughs> I just said cars and homes are the most expensive thing. No, no, it's, it's children. Uh, I think the, the latest numbers are that to bring a child from birth to 18 uh, cl costs close to $300,000. And now we're not, talking, we're not talking college or anything else like that. We're just talking bringing up a child. Uh, in a public school system um, uh, to 18 costs around $300,000. So, you know, maybe I just want one child and you want four. Well, obviously, that's a financial issue. We have to talk that out. And if we do have children, uh, is both spouses going to continue to work? Or are we going to uh, spend an average of $16,000 a year for, for child care costs? Uh, important things to discuss. And... Um, Another thing we want to discuss, do you have life insurance? Right, we're married now and one of us dies. Uh, how is that going to affect the surviving spouse? And if you don't, are you going to get it and how much are you going to get it for? So these are pre-wedding, pre-nuptial pre discussion that you have to have. Now you're a newlywed. You just got married. Uh, you're just getting home from your uh, honeymoon. And now, like I said before, are you committed to combining our finances? Or are we going to live separate financial lives? And now, like I said, now, you know, nowadays, a, a lot of people want to keep their money separate. I see it all the time. And they come in uh, for a financial plan with me and they give me a list of his assets and they give me a list of her assets. And I go, well, isn't it just your assets? You guys are married now. You're, you're a family. And it took me a while to, to get that through my son's head, who recently got married in his early 30s. That, you know, now your money and her money is the same, right? You're one family now and you have to get used to having joint accounts and, and realizing that it's not my cost. You know, my son says, well, I'm going to pay for the boat and she's going to pay for the house. Well, you know, you're both paying for it one way or the other. So have a joint checking account, determine how much each paycheck you're each going to put in it. Uh, and hopefully that's enough to cover all the bills. And then if you want to have a separate account that you could spend any way you want, well, that's something to be discussed. Um, then are you going to be upset with each other? Uh, if um, one's spending too much money on things, 
even if it comes out of the account that's in their name alone, because you realize that, hey, you know, we're married now. We have basically joint assets. You know, your money is my money, right? Uh, is that going to be a problem for you? You know, so combining finances is a real big thing. Uh, and that's why it's so important to even before you get um, married is to have that talk, schedule it for uh, a time and place in advance. So you're not going to have somebody rushing through it. And uh, hopefully it won't get heated. <laughs> hopefully you can talk through this on a level, a level sheet. The first thing to do is uh, a marital balance sheet, I call it. Uh, each one of you write down on a piece of paper. Uh, on the left-hand side, put all the things you own, assets. I mean, I'm not talking about small things, but I'm talking about, you know, savings accounts, IRA accounts, your 401k, um, anything you own, real estate. And on the right-hand side, put all your debts, your student loans, your credit cards, your car loans, anything else you own, anybody. Uh, and again, Make sure you're honest here. Transparency is everything in this conversation. You don't want to hold anything back because sooner or later it's going to come out. So if you owe your, owe your brother or your mother 20 grand, that should come out in that conversation. Uh, so when you look at each other's balance sheet or net worth statement, it's the same thing. Uh, you got a picture of exactly where we are. Now, are we going to do one balance sheet next year of all our assets of Mr. and Mrs. Doe? Uh, or are we going to still have two balance sheets, right? These are things that you have to discuss before getting married. And, uh, you know, it's too late after you get married because you have to be financially compatible. Now, in my book, uh, The Financial Physician, How to Cure Your Money Problems and Boost Your Financial Health, uh, I, I have a chapter in there uh, talking about how you and your honey should manage the money together, the importance of spousal teamwork. Because without any spousal teamwork, one's going to sabotage the other. And it's going to hurt your marriage. Because if one is not on the same page, if you are incompatible financially uh, with your spouse, the chances of your marriage lasting is very slim. So it's important that you're a team. And when I say spousal teamwork, what I mean is that have a monthly financial meeting. Now, very few people do this, and uh, I, I know it's, difficult to schedule this, but you know, when it's quiet, the kids are in bed or um, uh, if you don't have any children, when you're, you know, you, you could unplug your phones, uh, turn them off and, and have a meeting, pay all the monthly bills together, review every bill. Hey, honey, I mean, look at electric bill. It's, you know, it's God, it's $400 this month. Can we do anything to get it down? Or the, or the gas bill, you know, maybe we can, maybe we can get by with 70 degrees instead of 72 in the winter. We're 68. Uh, maybe we're going to be very diligent in turning off the lights that we don't need. Uh, how about credit card bills? Review the credit card bill. How much interest did we pay this month? Look at this. We paid $150 in interest. That's money we just flushed down the toilet. Let's get a strategy to pay down that principal. Let's let's do away. Let's, let's, not, let's not go out to dinner three days a week. Let's go out two and redirect that money towards paying down that credit card. Now, again, sometimes one spouse is really good at finances and likes it and very diligent paying the bills. Uh, and the other one sticks their head in the sand. And I got to say in my own household, my wife doesn't want to have anything to do with finances. And I try to engage her. I try to get her to do it, but she doesn't want to know. 
She has no idea what our net worth is. And she don't care. That's the interesting thing about it. She's known that I've been able to provide for her our whole married life. Uh, I've been fortunate enough that, that my wife, Sue, has not had to work since we got married. Uh, and she was able to bring up our children and, and stay home. And she does, her, you know, she does her job is taking care of my, was taking care of my kids in my home. And she's done a great job at that. And again, I'm fortunate, but you know, most families, you know, both husband and wife have to work. Uh, but you know, that monthly meeting is so important. Then you want to look at, uh, your savings accounts. Uh, are we saving any money, honey? Oh no, we're going the other way. We took money out of our savings last month. How are we going to build it back up? How about an emergency fund? Uh, what are we going to do to make sure we have three to six months cash on the side in case something happens, in case we need a car repair or a medical issue comes up, that we have money that we don't have to go into our credit card? How are we doing with our investments, our 401ks? How much do we have going in from each paycheck? Can we do more? Um, how we invested that money? Let's look at our investments. How did they perform last month? What's the trend in our investments? Do we need to make any changes? You know, it's amazing. People manage their own money um, in their investments, rarely make changes. And when they do, it's usually because uh, of an emotion. They get panicky and they make the wrong decision. Uh, so uh, important every every month, talk about it. How you know? And, and it's just, it just amazes me. I ask people when they come in with a 401k, I said, A, um, What's the asset allocation here? Uh, what's, what percent is equities and what percent is bonds? And they look at me like I'm crazy. Uh, well, uh, tell me why you have this investment in here. Uh, they can't tell me. They just had it for a long time and they've never evaluated it. They've never compared it to alternatives and they just ride the ups and downs of the market. Well, if you had that monthly meeting with your spouse and you reviewed your investments, every account that you have, uh, and you talk about, should we make a change here? And why should we make it? And what we're going to make the change to? I mean, if we're going to sell an investment, where are we going to put those proceeds? So uh, love and marriage, money and marriage. Money is a very, very important thing because if you fight about money, the love is leaving. And the love and marriage thing does not work. And more often than not, uh, it's going to end in a divorce. Uh, you want to talk about, uh, if you thought you had financial problems when you were married, wait, wait, wait to see what happens when you go through a divorce. And I've talked about that uh, many times on the program. Uh, so uh, do that. Uh, if you're already married, uh, it's not too late for you to start being a team uh, and doing things together. And again, that doesn't mean that, that one person can't drive the car. I'm not saying that both of you have to equally be involved, but both of you should equally know what's going on. And if we do, if we do this, we're going to have some accountability. I mean, uh, you can't, you know, uh, is your spouse going to find out when he looks at your credit card statement that you spent uh, $300 on shoes that you didn't really need? Or, you know, uh, you know, you, your husband's playing uh, golf twice a week and it's costing, you know, $150 a week. Uh, these are things that obviously you want to know about beforehand. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to ask permission to spend every dime that you have, but, uh, maybe, you know, you each have a separate account, uh, where you put some mad money in and, you know, nobody, nobody questions what happens to that account. As long as one person doesn't have a larger allowance than the other. So marriage and money important. 
And if you want to be successful, it's important to talk about it and talk about it often. All right, let's take a quick break. Be back right after this. Are you currently retired or planning to retire in the next five years? Hey, Lou Skatigna here, certified financial planner, personal finance author, president of AFM Investments. Why not join me for a comprehensive financial review at my downtown Tom's River office? Banks are paying virtually nothing, and the stock market has become a risky casino. But there are ways to achieve reasonable returns without taking on big risks. Let me show you how. During our meeting, I will determine your net worth, find ways to maximize your income, and minimize your taxes. I'll review your estate plan and discuss strategies to protect your estate from nursing home costs. Managing your finances is more complicated than ever, but you don't have to go it alone. So make your no-obligation appointment today by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin & Company, member FINRA and SIPC, registered advisory services through Argentus Advisors. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Welcome back to the Financial Physician Podcast. Just a reminder, we put up the podcast. Uh, it's up by 9 a.m. Sunday morning Eastern Time. Uh, Maybe up earlier, depending when I get it polished up and ready to go. Uh, I usually uh, do most of the recording on Friday. And then I, uh, I finish it on Saturday. And I could probably put it up Saturday night, but uh, more often than not, it's going to be up uh, early Sunday morning. I think last week I put it up at 7 a.m. Now, it's important for you to, uh, when you go to the podcast, the Podomatic, follow the show. There's a place where you could follow. And uh, as soon as we update the podcast, you automatically get an email. So you'll be notified exactly when the podcast is available. It has the link. You can just click on it and bring it right to the show. Uh, or um, just follow me wherever else you listen to podcasts, if you're on Apple or Spotify, anywhere else. So we do have it up. It's the main podcast of the week. Uh, this coming week, I'm going to start doing a midweek podcast. I was going to start it um, this past week, but with the 4th of July on Tuesday and all the stuff going on, uh, I just didn't do it. So we're going to start our mid- midweek podcast. I'll probably have it up Wednesday or Thursday. It's not as good. It's not going to be as long as... Um, as the Sunday podcast, uh, but it'll bring you up to date on things that have happened between uh, Sunday when I put this podcast up uh, and midweek. Uh, and we'll touch on some current event items uh, uh, that I think you need to know about midweek. So that's the Financial Physician Podcast at Podomatic. Uh, thanks so much for sharing it with your friends and family, social media. Uh, we're podcast only now, so for us to grow, it's, it's, it's going to be all on you guys uh, to share it. Uh, and to uh, tell people about the show because we talk about things on the financial position that you're not going to hear elsewhere. Also, love your emails. If you want me to cover something uh, on the program, uh, let me know a topic that you want me to cover. If you have a personal finance question uh, that you want me to deal with on the air, we have a couple of emails we got this week that I'll I'll get to later on in the program. Uh, And uh, if you have a question, I'm sure other people could benefit by hearing your question and my answer to it. that's Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Or if you just have a personal finance question, you don't want it on the air, you just want me to respond to you 
Uh, I love to respond uh, to everyone who sends me an email, but certainly those who uh, who have a problem that I could uh, potentially help. Now, this past week, uh, as is always the case, the first Friday of the new month, they released the uh, um, employment numbers from the previous month. Uh, so uh, this past Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or I like to call it the Bureau of Lying Statistics because I don't trust anything that comes out of there. Uh, but they announced that 220, uh, 209,000 uh, jobs were created in June. And that was less than was expected. Uh, the, the market expected, the economists expected 225,000. So it was slightly lower. Uh, this is the first time, I think, uh, actually 13 of the last 14 months, it was a surprise to the upside, meaning that the numbers were better than expected which tells you a lot about the accuracy of these numbers. And also, they're always adjusted a few months later. Uh, but this was a relatively weak jobs number. And uh, and I think a lot of economists are very happy for it because they don't want a lot of jobs created because that's going to cause the Federal Reserve to continue its interest rate hikes. Uh, and uh, if you have a, a slowing economy and you see that in the jobs number and the unemployment rate, uh, it's less likely that uh, the Federal Reserve would be concerned about uh, inflation. So uh, this was a good number, and I think the markets kind of liked it. Uh, at least uh, uh, the economists like it. Now, these things are very volatile, and next month it could be 500,000. I mean, who knows? The unemployment rate, though, dropped, again, according to the Bureau of Lying Statistics, uh, dropped from 3.7% uh, to 3.6%. But if we look at unemployment, differently. It's not a good situation because the way the government categorizes or classifies jobless, they have two categories. The first category is unemployed and the second category is not in the labor force. Now they sound like they should be the same, right? Uh, but they're not. Officially unemployed means that you were actively looking for a job when they did the survey. Not in, a worse, uh, not in the labor force just means that you're not looking. Maybe you're just discouraged. Uh, maybe you have been looking, but you just stopped for a while because you can't find the job that you want. So let's look at these numbers now. Officially, there's only 6 million people that are unemployed, that are considered classified, I should say, as unemployed. But we have a staggering almost 100 million people that are working age that are not in the labor force. So if you add these two together, you have almost 106 million working age Americans that don't have a job right now. But meanwhile, they say the unemployment rate dropped from 3.7 to 3.6%. So how could this be? Well, it just goes to show you how fudged the numbers are. Now, John Williams, who has a website, it's called the shadowstats.com. He's an old economist, been around for a long time, and he calculates economic numbers the way they used to be calculated before the government realized that they could influence these numbers with seasonal adjustments and things like that, whether it's the GDP, whether it's the unemployment rate, uh, whether uh, whatever. He figures it all out. Well, his calculation in, of unemployment in this country is somewhere around 25 percent which pretty much jives with what I just told you. There's 106 million working age Americans that are not in the labor force. Now, some of them have decided to retire early. 
uh, some of them were forced to retire early uh, and they just, you know, decided not to look for work anymore. But you're talking 106 million people that are working age that don't have a job. Many of them don't have a job because they can't find one. Now, I have a friend who uh, uh, very, very, very qualified guy. Uh, he's run plants, uh, industrial plants. Uh, he's been salesman. He's, he's, he's done a lot of things. He was out of work. He lost his job. It took him uh, six months to find a job that was even com somewhat comparable to what he was doing. And he told me, look, I've sent out hundreds of resumes and had very few interviews. So when they say all these jobs are being created, what are they? Uh, they're part-time jobs. They're low-paying jobs. They're jobs without benefits. Uh, and, you know, if you lost a full-time job uh, and you can't find one, uh, maybe you're going to get three part-time jobs. And here you have Biden, you know, they traipse him out every month. They wake him up and take him out, put his suit on. And, uh, and he comes out and he says, my administration created 13 million jobs. Uh, yeah, a lot of low-paying jobs. I wonder what happened to the good-paying jobs. Uh, and we've seen more and more of um, the economy slowing. Uh, and I expect that we're going to start seeing more and more uh, unemployment. Now, whether they report it or not, that's another story. They're certainly not going to report it. Uh, between now and the election, they're going to always spin things as best they can. Now, if we look even deeper, I mean, Americans are going deeper into debt, record credit card debt, uh, at a time of record interest rates. Uh, the savings rate is at an all-time low. I think it's 4.6%. It was, on average, 8.9% for many, many years. And uh, now we're seeing people, you know, their savings are gone. Uh, due to inflation, you know, even though people have been getting uh, raises, the raises haven't been enough to keep pace with inflation. And uh, and that's a big problem for Americans. So they've been using credit cards. They've been using their savings if they're lucky enough to have it. Um, and I've told you many times here, like 50% of Americans can't come up with $1,000 for an emergency. So what happens if your car breaks down or something? You'd be able to rip out that credit card. And it's a big problem. And, you know, interest rates are high. So, you know, you try to get a car loan, you're looking at double digit interest rate. You try to buy a house. Uh, interest rates now are approaching 7% in mortgages. And I expect probably by next week, they're going to be above. Why do I say that? Uh, this week, interest rates on the 10-year Treasury bond, the U.S. Treasury bond, went over 4% for the first time in months. Uh, interest rates were not long ago, uh, 34 and here we are, uh, last I looked uh, as I'm taping a show, it was 4.05% on the 10-year. And why is that important? Because fixed-rate mortgages are pegged to the 10-year treasury. So if interest rates continue to go up in a 10-year treasury, well, mortgage rates are going to continue to go up. But even, even so, I mean, the Federal Reserve uh, released their minutes from their last meeting, uh, and uh, almost all of them, believe that they have to raise interest rates further to tame inflation. And it wasn't even a unanimous decision not to raise interest rates on the last meeting. Uh, but it's baked in a cake that there's a 95% chance uh, that in a meeting later uh, this month that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates at least a quarter of a point. I think it's safe to say a quarter of a point. 
So uh, the interest rate cycle still is going higher. And there's a good chance that they're going to raise again later in the year. Uh, and that's a big problem. You know, earlier this uh, year, we heard about these bank failures, right? Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank, Signature Bank. Uh, well, these banks had all had a similar problem. And that was their bond portfolio went down as the Fed raised interest rates. The number one rule in bond investing is that if interest rates go up, bond prices decline. And the longer the maturity of the bonds, the more the decline, the greater the decline. So a 20-year bond is going to decline more than a five-year bond. Why is that? Because a five-year bond is going to mature in five years and it can reinvest it at higher rates. A 20-year bond has a lower interest rate for 20 more years. So people are going to pay you less for that bond. So what happened is the Fed raised interest rates. All these bonds that these banks have, because what do, what do banks do? If they don't lend it out, what they do is they take your deposits, they pay you a fraction of 1%, and they were happy to put it in the 20-year U.S. Treasury bond and get two. And that was fine when interest rates were very, very low. But now that interest rates rose, and now a 20-year bond is paying something like 5%, uh, those bonds have dropped tremendously in value. And that's fine if you don't have to sell them. But what happened with Silicon Valley Bank is, is depositors were taking money out for various reasons. Uh, they were forced to sell off their bonds to, to make good to the depositors. And all their capital uh, dropped. So it's, it's interesting that the Federal Reserve uh, is continuing to raise interest rates in the face of a banking crisis that hasn't gone away. You haven't heard it in the, in the, in the news lately, so, you know, but that's because the Federal Reserve has provided liquidity to a lot of banks. You know, if you have a bond, you know, you, that, that a bank paid, you know, $50 million for, uh, they can give it to the Federal Reserve. The Fed will give them $50 million, even though it's worth $25 million. Now, ultimately, the, the bank has to buy back that bond from the Fed. Uh, but the bottom line is that, you know, they're not being forced to liquidate these positions. And a good thing, too, because if they if they, they did, we'd have cascading bank failures. Uh, and a lot of money has been going to the big banks, but the big banks are certainly not immune to losses in the bond market. And this came out this week. Um, Bank of America nurses a $100 billion paper loss after big bet in the bond market. And it goes on to say, uh, the Bank of America is bearing costs of decisions made three years ago to pump the majority of $670 billion and pandemic-era deposit inflows into debt markets at a time when bonds traded at historically high prices and low yields. The moves left Bank of America, the second-largest U.S. bank by assets, with more than $100 billion in paper losses at the end of the first quarter, according to data from the FDIC. The sum far exceed unrealized bond market losses reported by its largest peers. All right, so they have $100 billion in paper losses. And the banks have an advantage that most companies don't have, is that they never have to mark to market their securities. In other words, if they're they have you know 500 billion in bonds and it's only worth 250 billion, they could still have it on their balance sheet at 500 billion, which is remarkable in itself because all it does is mask losses that the banks have. Uh, but, you know, even the big banks are getting hit here. I bet $100 billion is huge. Let's compare them to uh, second place. J.P. Morgan, Chase, and Wells Fargo. 
the nation's first and third largest banks, respectively. Each had about $40 billion in unrealized bond losses, while the fourth largest, Citigroup's paper losses were $25 billion. So the losses at Bank of America accounted for a fifth of the $515 billion in total unrealized losses in securities portfolios among the nation's 4,600 banks at the end of the first quarter. Uh, so, I mean... Silicon Valley Bank failed after they lost $1.8 billion in their bond portfolio. Uh, and, and Bank of America has, has $100 billion. But no worries, because Bank of America has a lot of cash, uh, and they have more than enough money to uh, pay out depositors, assuming there's not a major run on the bank, uh, because a lot of depositors have pulled their money out of the regional banks and put them in the big banks. Uh, so they got a lot of cash on hand, and I don't expect that they're going to have to... Uh, liquidate that portfolio anytime soon, unless we have a major banking crisis uh, and people want to pull their money out. So the Federal Reserve is intent on continuing to raise interest rates, even though we're seeing, again, according to the, the government, we're starting to see inflation moderate. Uh, we still have uh, 4% year-over-year inflation. Again, if you believe the government's numbers, you know, you could double that. It's probably 8 to 12, uh, but, um, but it's going the right way. And I'm surprised that the the, um, the Fed doesn't, you know, halt, not for one month, but, you know, let's see what happens, you know, three to six months down the road. And you would think that, you know, with the, the decimation of the bond portfolios of banks, uh, that, that they would slow down their interest rate increases. Uh, but they're not. And uh, if you're looking to buy a home, uh, you're going to be paying over 7% in 30-year fixed rate mortgage uh, very soon. Now, I'm surprised, and a lot of people are surprised, that, you know, the housing market has held up pretty good. You know, especially here in the Northeast. I mean, I don't know really necessarily around the rest of the, um, the country, but pretty much the, the housing market has, has held up well. And the reason being is that there's a, there's a shortage of inventory in the existing home market. Because right now, people, you know, many people refinance their mortgages when interest rates were low. A lot of people have 3.5% mortgages. They're not willing to sell their house and buy a new one and replace that 3.5% mortgage with a 7% mortgage. So what people are doing is they're staying in their own house, at least if they can. And that's causing inventory to be low, which means that you know buyers are willing to pay up. Now, I wouldn't be buying a house right now. I If, if, if I was just newly married, uh, I would rent for a few years. And that's the advice I've been giving my clients, uh, children, uh, not to run out and buy a home right now. Because once interest rates start coming down, again, two things are going to happen. Number one, mortgages are going to become more affordable, so you'll have lower payments. Uh, and number two, uh, I think housing prices are going to go down when interest rates go down, which is kind of a uh, an anomaly here. You know, usually when interest rates go up, the housing market suffers. But there's a very unique situation now because many people have such low mortgages that they don't want to sell their house. Uh, and uh, I don't think that's ever happened before because we've never had mortgages at three and a half percent. So it's kind of a weird dynamic. But those people who want to sell and trade up or downsize, uh, once interest rates come down, they're going to say, well, wait a second. I, you know, I could sell I could sell now because I'm, I'm not I don't have to get a seven percent mortgage. I could deal with a five percent mortgage. 
And economists are saying that that's the key number. When mortgage rates get down to 5%, there's going to be a flood of housing inventory in the market. And we may even see a substantial decline in home prices due to lower interest rates. Kind of a fascinating thing. Uh, uh, I thought it'd be just the opposite, but now I understand why. When uh, when it's explained that, hey, too many people have just a low mortgage and they're not willing to, to give up that 30-year, 3.5%, mortgage they had uh, to replace it with a third year, uh, 7% mortgages. So we'll see later this month what the Fed does. Um, I think uh, for sure we're going to see them raise interest rates a quarter of a point, which is a good thing for savers. Um, right now, U.S. Treasury money market uh, mutual funds are, are, are yielding uh, over 4.5%. And as soon as the Fed raises interest rates later in the month, it's going to be probably 4 and three quarter to 5%. Uh, and this is risk-free money. This is money that's not in the banking system. This is money that is in U.S. Treasuries via a U.S. government money market fund. So I've been getting a lot of inquiries about this, and, and many people uh, have been taking money out of banks and putting them in U.S. Treasury money market funds. Absolute smart move for savings. It's not a long-term solution because money market funds don't keep pace with inflation. It never does. All right, But... Uh, it's certainly uh, uh, better than having your money in a savings account, you know, paying you a fraction of 1% uh, or a 2% CD or something like that. And you don't have to worry about the financial strength of the bank. You don't have to worry about the FDIC insurance. Uh, you don't have to worry about a banking crisis because in a big crisis, which I think is coming, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, we're going into an economic abyss uh, and we're starting to see it in manufacturing. We're starting to see it in a lot of the economic numbers. And uh, my guess is that we are going to consider continue to see uh, economic numbers go into recession territory. Already the IMF said that the world uh, uh, is already in recession. Uh uh, and I don't think it's going to be long before it's going to be evident to everybody that the United States is in a recession as well. Now, some believe that once that becomes evident, the Fed's going to reverse themselves and start lowering interest rates and everything will be hunky-dory. Uh, but no, I think we're entering a financial crisis like we haven't seen before. And, um, and I think the Fed is exacerbating it by raising interest rates. And I, I, I feel bad because I think a lot of American families, they're struggling now. All right. But once we start seeing skyrocketing unemployment uh, and we see people's credit lines uh, getting uh, uh, filled up and they don't have any more credit on their credit cards, uh, we're going to see a, a very, 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 very bad economic situation for the average family. It's tough enough right now. Uh, I just shudder to think about what it will be six months from now or, or, or more likely in 2024. Uh, when we have a severe recession like we haven't seen, you know, in a long, long time or worse. Uh, and it's ready to be in, uh, seen elsewhere in the world. More ominous news came out uh, this week regarding the consumer. Uh, the headline of this article is something just snapped. Consumers panic search porn shop near me. Cash strapped Americans are panic searching porn shop near me. Uh, hit a record high at the start of July and is an ominous sign the consumer might be pawning items or selling things that were possibly bought during the COVID boom to raise quick money amid the worst inflation storm in a generation. So I'm looking at a chart of uh, Google Analytics, and it's just amazing how it's just going straight up. 
Uh, and interest in the search uh, trend is nationwide. Uh, the highest area is the Deep South. Um, so uh, maybe Bidenomics isn't really working too good. I mean, we've had two years of real negative wage growth, meaning that inflation is going up a higher percentage than wages are. Uh, we have record, record amounts of credit card debt, I said before, at the highest interest rate that we've ever seen, or at least in a generation. Um, and uh, now people are starting to sell stuff to get by, going to porn shops. I mean, that, that's pretty uh, pretty desperate stuff. And you know what else that tells me? That tells me people are hitting the wall on their credit card debt, uh, that their credit line, uh, they're hitting the, the limit. And another thing that we see banks doing now lately is they're lowering credit limits, which is pretty scary. I mean, say you have a $15,000 credit limit and you're at twelve, and they cut it. They say you're done. You know, you can't borrow any more money. We're bringing it down to twelve, and uh, and that's it. That's that's pretty unnerving because maybe you were counting on that credit, you know, to get you through uh, the rest of the year, and now you don't have it. So what do you do? Well. You start, you start selling stuff. You start pawning and stuff. And uh, I was pretty disturbed to see that article, actually. Uh, it's very, very sad that a family uh, would be in that situation where they're starting to sell off items uh, in their home uh, just to get by. Uh, but, you know, according to Biden, uh, the economy is doing great. And that's the thing about these people. They lie right to your face. It's just amazing. Uh, like, you, we, like, we don't know. Like these people who are pointing everything they have to get by uh, don't know that the economy is doing horrible under Joe Biden. Uh, they don't know when they go to the store that inflation's out of control. Uh, uh, it, it's just amazing. But they'll keep coming out and they'll keep telling you, you know, Joe Biden's Bidenomics, whatever that means, uh, is doing great. Joe, all these jobs are being created. Um, Americans are doing great. Uh, could it be better? Now let's shift gears and talk taxes. Uh, if you recall a few years back, uh, I think uh, I think it was 2017, uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, came out, and that was the Trump tax cuts, if you recall, where they did away with personal exemptions and they doubled the standard deduction for everybody. Now, since they did that, hardly anybody itemizes deductions anymore because the standard deduction is, you know, is so huge. You take a married couple, you know, it's like $26,000. Um, so, uh, you know, people don't have enough deductions uh, to exceed that. So you take the standard deduction and the standard deduction lowers your income by whatever the standard deduction is for you. And it differs whether you're a single, it's half that, uh, whether you're married, whether you're 65 or older, whether you're head of household, it's a little different for each person. But the, the, the tax act that came out in 2017 is set to expire in 2025, meaning that everything goes back to the way it was prior to that, which means the standard deduction is cut in half, personal exemptions come back and, and all that. So uh, I don't think the Democrats or Republicans want to go back to that. So there's, there's debate now in Washington of what to do with this. And one of the things they're looking at and actually passed the Republican House of Way, uh, uh, Ways and Means Committee. Uh, is to increase the standard deduction, $2,000 for a single person and $4,000 for a married couple. And they want to change the name of it to the guaranteed deduction as opposed to the standard deduction. Uh, I don't know 
why the nomenclature change would be, but whatever. Uh, so this is being you know debated now in Congress. Are they going to do this or not? Now, the Republicans passed it this past week. Uh, we'll see what the Democrats do uh, in the Senate with this. But uh, Democrats are saying, I think, that it, it doesn't help the poor enough uh, that there should be more provisions in this uh, for lower-income people. But lower-income people don't pay taxes. That's the thing. Uh, what do they want to do, give them a bigger earned income credit, a refundable earned income credit? Uh, you know, with the standard deduction, uh, you know, poor people pay hardly any taxes, a very, very low percent, if any. Uh, on their income. So the only way to benefit lower income people is to give them more of a credit, uh, which is welfare, basically, uh, uh, so they can get a huge, a bigger uh, refund. So we'll see where that goes. But I think there's a good chance here that uh, we're going to see the standard deduction go up. And, and for a married couple, $4,000, if you're in a 25% tax bracket, that's a thousand bucks in tax savings. So I'll continue to follow this uh, this development here, uh, and uh, now this would go into effect uh, 2024. So anything they vote on now will have no effect on the tax uh, taxes for this year. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll keep a good eye on that. Also, something else came out uh, recently, and the IRS quietly changed the rules uh, for your children's inheritance, and this has to do with. Um, uh, irrevocable trusts. You know, some people um, try to protect their assets, so they put it in an irrevocable trust. And the way irrevocable trust works is you can never touch that asset again. You, you'll never benefit by it, all right? Uh, if it's a house, you can live there, but you'll never benefit by the, the actual dollar amount of that. You can't sell it and take the money and benefit by it in any way. So you basically say goodbye to that asset as a monetary thing for your retirement. And, and some people do that uh, just so they could qualify for Medicaid earlier and at least protect the house as an in, uh, inheritance for the children. Well, typically up until recently, you know, when you die, your beneficiaries get what's called a stepped up cost basis to any asset that appreciated, whether it's a stock or bond or a piece of real estate. So say your parent uh, your parent uh, or your parent uh, bought a house, you know, 40 years ago for 150000 and now it's 500000 Well, you know, there's going to be a significant capital gain there, right? But if they die and you inherit it, you get what's called a stepped-up cost basis, whether it's a stock or real estate, meaning that when you sell it, the cost basis for capital gains purposes is the value of that asset at the date of death. So at the date of death, the house is worth five hundred thousand. You sell it for five hundred thousand, you would pay zero tax on that, and that's a great thing because you get to inherit appreciated assets tax free, and that was true even in an irrevocable trust. The ultimate beneficiaries of the trust would receive that cost basis. A recent IRS ruling, uh, Revenue Ruling twenty twenty three two, is doing away with that in irrevocable trust. So if you take your house and you put it in an irrevocable trust, you got to understand that there may be a major tax implication for your children ultimately. And estate planners are really trying to go through this now and figure out, is this a good strategy anymore? Because let's say in this, in this 350000 let's say it's a $400,000 capital gain. 
well, the tax to your family is going to be $60,000 federal capital gains tax. There'll also be a state income tax on that as well. So uh, this is a, a pretty serious thing. And it, it kind of happened under the radar. Uh, I didn't hear about this. And this happened, I think, in, um, when did this happen? Uh, it doesn't say, but it, it happened earlier. This, you know, March 2023 is when this came out. I just heard about it this week. So it's pretty much uh, happened under the radar. And uh, financial planners and estate planners now uh, are starting to scramble and say, wait a second, I, I didn't see this ruling. It was never, I didn't see it in the, in the press anywhere. Uh, maybe because it's too esoteric, it's irrevocable trust and they'd have to explain it. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but unless this is somehow changed, uh, it's, it's something that you have to be really concerned about. Now, the question is, and I, I'm not sure if I know the answer to this question, what if you already have a house in the irrevocable trust? Uh, are you grandfathered in or are they going to change the rule on you? And now you can't even come out of it. That's a good question because it's irrevocable, right? Uh, let me just look at this article. Maybe they, maybe they say that in March, the IRS issued revenue ruling 2023-2, which had a substantial impact on estate planning, particularly where an irrevocable trust is involved. Uh, in the last decade or so, more families have begun utilizing irrevocable trust to protect their assets from spend down in order to qualify for government benefits such as Medicaid and VA aid. So prior to March 2023, such transfers from the trust at death have been generally received a stepped up basis. But that may no longer be the case. Uh, so it doesn't say if it would affect existing ones. I would think that it would not affect the existing ones because you made the decision to put it in the irrevocable trust based on certain tax law at the time. They have to grandfather those in. I'm going to do some more research on that. Uh, it just I just saw this just prior, uh, hours prior to uh, uh, broadcasting, uh, taping this program. So I'm going to do a deep dive into it because um, uh, that would be a major issue uh, because now you can't take the house out of the trust and all of a sudden, you know, your family just got hit with a big tax bite uh, that may have prevented you from putting it in irrevocable trust. I can't see them doing that. I, I, I would just think going forward after March 2023, uh, any houses uh, uh, that are put into a trust would be subjected to this, whether your family would not get the stepped up cost basis. But keep in mind, though, it's so important to understand this stuff, because if you do things the wrong way, it could have a tax bite. Uh like, here's an example. Say you gifted, say say you had, um, um, you bought IBM in 1965, and uh, you paid $10,000 for it, it's worth $100,000 now. Well, if your heirs inherit that, the cost basis is $100,000, the value at the date of your death. And there'll be little, if any, capital gains tax when it's sold. But say you gift it to them, you just give them the stock. Now they're going to assume your cost basis for capital gains tax purposes, which would be $10,000, which means if they sold it, they would have a $90,000 capital gain taxed at 15%. So they'd be better off inheriting that than being gifted it. So be careful before you gift appreciated property, whether it's a home, uh, whether it's a stock portfolio or mutual fund or something like that, make sure you understand the tax implications of doing that. Uh, and maybe it would be better off for them to inherit 
that asset uh, versus you giving it to them. Now, keep in mind, too, if you sell it, you're going to get the capital gains tax, too. But it's always great. It's not great when you die, but it's great when a person inherits an appreciated asset because the capital gains tax goes away. Now, people make big mistakes in the estate planning at the end of their lives. I see it all the time, and it, they're very, very costly mistakes. I've said on this program in the past, I had a client who uh, didn't consult with me but did this on their own, uh, got cancer, an older person. So he uh, got nervous, and he was concerned that he may need nursing home costs in the future, and he gifted his home to his kids. And uh, he winds up dying three months later and never went into a nursing home. But the problem with this is now, if they would have inherited a house, they would have no taxes. But he bought this house in Lavalette, uh, which those who don't know where Lavalette is, it's a, it's, a, it's a beach community here on the Jersey Shore, very wealthy beach community. Uh, and he paid 47000 for the house in 1950 or something like some crazy year like that. Uh, and it was worth a million dollars. Well, they sold the house and they had to pay taxes on over $900,000. Uh, do the math, 15% of $900,000. It cost them roughly with state and uh, federal income taxes, $200,000 because he gifted the appreciated property to them. If three months later they inherited it, they'd have zero taxes. So you can see uh, how costly not getting the proper advice was. And I, I wanted to puke because all it would have taken was a phone call to me. And I would have said, don't do this. Uh, but, you know, he did it on his own. And his family paid the price for that. So I'm going to follow this new IRS ruling. We'll let you know more about it uh, next week after I, I find out. I just want to know if, if people are grandfathered into this. Like if you put your house in an irrevocable trust years ago, you know, your kids inherit this, are they going to get a stepped up cost basis? Uh, right now, I don't know that, and uh, I'll do a deep dive into that, and I'll report it to you next week. All right, let's take a short break. On the other side of the break, we're going to delve into the crazy news. Don't go away. Are you currently retired or planning to retire in the next five years? Hey, Lou Skatigna here, certified financial planner, personal finance author, president of AFM Investments, and host of The Financial Position. Why not join me for a comprehensive financial review at my downtown Tom's River office? Banks are paying virtually nothing, and the stock market has become a risky casino. But there are ways to achieve reasonable returns without taking on big risks. Let me show you how. During our meeting, I will determine your net worth, find ways to maximize your income, and minimize your taxes. I'll review your estate plan and discuss strategies to protect your estate from nursing home costs. Managing your finances is more complicated than ever, but you don't have to go it alone. So make your no obligation appointment today by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company, member FINRA and SIPC. Registered advisory services through Fortitude Advisory Group. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Okay, just when you thought things couldn't get worse for the Bidens, 
while you and I were enjoying our 4th of July holiday, uh, the news broke that they found cocaine in the White House. Now, it's probably not the first time Blow has been in the White House. I think maybe it started with Bill Clinton. Uh, but um, this is really starting to get out of control. I mean, where does it end here with these people? I mean, you know, it's bad enough the corruption, uh, the preferential treatment with the IRS and, and, and all the other stuff. But now we have cocaine in the White House. Who do you think it is that brought it in there? Uh, I think most people know. Uh, will we ever know for sure? Probably not. They're going to cover it up. You know that. Uh, I'm sure that there's cameras in every part of the White House. They know exactly who brought it in there. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, on Twitter, they showed a, a video. Apparently on uh, the 4th of July, or I think it was Monday or Tuesday, Independence Day, uh, the Biden family was on the uh, balcony of the White House. And, you know, the, the grandkids are there. Jill was there. Joe's there. And you see Hunter Biden, who looks totally strung out on cocaine. If anybody's seen people on cocaine, you, you know the look. And uh, apparently it looks like he goes behind Jill and does a one hit of cocaine right on, on the balcony of the White House in front of the kids. Uh, it's pretty sick of Drew. But go search out that video and tell me that that doesn't look like somebody who just did a hit of cocaine. You know, he's holding his nose and everything else. I mean, this guy's got a real problem. If you think an addict who was uh, as strung out on crack as he was, and he's got all the pictures to prove it on the laptop. Well, by the way, the whole laptop is available to the public now. Uh, I'll have to get the website. Uh, but just Google, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop, and, and there's a site that has it. Now, of course, all the perverted pictures or blocked out the genitals and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, but um, it's all there and it's so sordid. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Th th this guy's got problems, uh, but that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is um, obviously the, the corrupt dealings of the Biden family, which is documented. I mean, they have all the documentation. They have the wire transfers from the banks. It's, it's all there. Just like all the evidence was there of Hunter Biden's tax evasion that would have put you or me in jail. Uh, and he got a, a slap on the wrist. And, and Americans uh, are aware now, not only do we have a two-tier justice system, now we have the IRS that treats elites, or at least Democrat elites, uh, different than they'll treat you or me. If you or me evaded taxes on $1.5 million in income. Do you think we get a misdemeanor charge? <laughs> and I still don't know how they came up with him owing like 150000 That would be the penalties alone, let alone the tax. It's 10%. So I don't know where they got that number. Or do you think if that was a uh, maybe Donald Trump Jr. who evaded taxes on $1.5 million, you think, you think that he would just get a slap on the wrist? And, and people know that, you know, but now we have, you know, I'm going to get to back to that in a second because Victor Davis Hanson wrote an article uh, this week uh, that we're going to get to that talks about how, you know, Americans are pretty much detached from corrupt foreign dealings. It's not something that we deal with. But when you talk about the IRS, we all have to deal with it. And we all know that 
what kind of trouble we'd get in if we evaded taxes on a few thousand dollars, let alone 1.5 million. So, you know, when people see, you know, that that even this is corrupt, um, Mark Victor Hansen goes on to say how the whole system could fall apart. So I'll get to that in a second. Let's say with the cocaine thing. I mean, enough is enough. Now, what is Hunter Biden doing holding himself up in the White House? All of a sudden, he's there every day. Does he live there? I mean, not that he can't, but uh, does he live there? What does he think? If he just stays close to uh, the presidency, uh, it'll somehow uh, insulate him from justice? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's right. But how many of you think that we're going to know for certain that uh, this was Hunter Biden's? Uh, yeah, don't hold your breath. Now, reporters in the press briefing room, the House uh, White House briefing room, obviously are asking a lot of questions on this. Oh, by the way, the mainstream media, you know, haven't run very much uh, news coverage of this. They really haven't. I mean, it's amazing how they run shade for the Bidens. This family could do anything, and and, and the media uh, won't report it. That is until the, the media gets the word that Biden's done and, you know, he's no longer going to be running for president, then they'll throw him under the bus. And I think ultimately the Bidens are going to face justice here, um, but not while he's president or not while uh, the mainstream media believe he's going to be the candidate. So uh, Corinne Jean-Paul Pierre, whatever her name, I can never remember her name, KGP, uh, probably the worst press secretary uh, uh, any president has ever had. She's only press secretary because she's gay and she's black and she's a woman. But she does not know how to do that job. And it's quite obvious because she never answers a question. You know, she, someone did an analysis. They said that she's only answered 2% of questions asked uh, that dealt with the Biden corruption. And in this case, drug possession. Two percent. She always deflects. She deflects to the Justice Department. She deflects to the White House counsel. She she deflects to the IRS. She never answers the question. Which begs the question, why even have press briefings? And when she does answer the question, you know, she's she's um, looking in, the, in her notebook there and reading an answer. So listen to the question. This was asked by the New York Post uh, uh, reporter. Uh, about can you definitively say it's not the Bidens? And and she lost it. She basically turned it around and said that the reporter was irresponsible for even asking the question. Listen. Okay, guys, can you just say once and for all whether or not the cocaine belongs to the Bidens? So, a couple of things there. Um, he mentioned the Hatch Act because the question was posed to him in the Donald in using Donald Trump, and so he was trying to be very mindful. Uh, okay, I, I hear you, but you're asking me a question, so I'm answering it for you. Um, and so that's why he said the Hatch Act. So I would, I would, you know, have you read the transcript and read the transcript fully, so you can see exactly what he was trying to say. So that's number one. So we're not avoiding the question. That is not true. We've answered this question litigated this question for the last two days exhaustively um you know there has been some irresponsible reporting uh, about the family and uh and so i gotta call that out here and i have been very clear 
I was clear uh, two days ago when talking about this over and over again as I was being asked the question, as you know, and media outlets reported this, the Biden family was not here. They were not here. They were at Camp David. They were not here Friday. They were not here Saturday. They were not here Sunday. They were not even here Monday. They came back on Tuesday. So to ask that question is actually incredibly irresponsible. And and um, I'll just leave it there. All right. So it's the reporter's fault now for asking the question. And uh, they uh, she could have answered the question. No. It's absolutely not a Biden. Uh, they were not in possession of it. It's not theirs. But she never answers that question. She always deflects on it. And this is a typical uh, thing people do in debates when they don't want to answer something. They turn it around to make you the uh, the wrong person for even asking the question. But she's not good at it. Um, so they want to answer the question. She mentioned the Hatch Act before. Uh, another spokesperson wouldn't answer a question on this based on the Hatch Act, which is so such a joke. Uh, and experts have said that. Ridiculous. The Hatch Act means that you can't use your office uh, uh, in a way that would influence a campaign. All right. So she so he, he just decided he couldn't answer the question about the corruption or, or the illegal drug possession or how uh, uh, illegal powder got into the um, the White House. Oh, by the way, it wasn't even powder. It was kind of chunky. They showed a picture of it. Uh, pretty high quality stuff. Uh, Hunter has a good dealer. Um, anyway, uh, so again, in the big picture of things, look, the guy's a drug addict. We know it. Uh, but the question is, you know, the security in the White House. Now, you know, Repo Republicans in the Congress, you know, want answers. The Democrats never want answers. They don't care. That's the crazy thing about the Democratic Party. They don't care. They don't care if their president is corrupt. They don't care if their president is um uh, compromised with China or Ukraine. They don't care. Uh, and that's disturbing in itself. I mean, the Democratic Party has just devolved into, I don't know what it is. And we'll talk about it as we go on here. Some of the crazy, insane stuff that are going on with gender and political correctness and all this stuff. And 100% of the Democrats are for it. And uh, I just don't get it. Uh, they can't all be mentally ill at the same time. Um, anyway, so uh, so Tom Cotton, you know, a Republican senator uh, from Arkansas, uh, uh, pressed the U.S. Secret Service for details regarding the ongoing investigation into the, the discovery of cocaine at the White House. Um, and uh, Republican lawmakers are raising broader questions about security and drug use at the presidential residence. So uh, he sent a letter to Secret Service Director uh, Kimberly Cheetle. Uh, he urged the agency to promptly provide information regarding a specific location within the White House complex where the substance was found. It keeps changing. You know, she said initially that it was in a place, you know, frequented by visitors and so forth and so on. Then it was in a library. Where was it? I mean, that's easy to answer. The Secret Service knows that. Now they're saying it was uh, uh, in a, a room close to the Situation Room by the Oval Office. Well, general public doesn't go there. So he wants to know, what's the, what's the screening process at the White House? Who doesn't get screened and why? And how did this stuff get in there? Because what if it's anthrax or ricin or something uh, in there? 
But I think the obvious, uh, what do they call it, Occam's razor, you know, the obvious answer is probably the, the, the right one. I've seen some people on the internet calling Biden uh, Joe Blow. <laughs> Joe Blow. I like it. I don't, hey, maybe, maybe that's the way they're keeping Joe going. You know, they wake him up, they give him a couple of lines of cocaine, and he's able to go out there and read the teleprompter. Well, he still can't read the teleprompter. Uh, maybe, maybe that's the elixir uh, that's keeping the president going. I don't know. But God, it just seems like every few days something new comes out, a whistleblower, a document, a, a WhatsApp uh, thread threatening uh, Chinese if they don't pay him money. My father's sitting next to me. He's going to come after you. Can you imagine, like I said, can you imagine if this was the Trump White House? How It would be 24-7 news. Absolutely 24-7 news. But no, not so. Because it's the Biden. It's not a big deal. It's just political bull crap is what someone said uh, recently. Now, uh, Mike Pence came out. You know, he's running for president against Trump. Good luck with that. Um, uh, he expressed disbelief during an interview on you, you, Hewitt's national radio show on Wednesday. Pence said it would be wall-to-wall media coverage if cocaine had been found in the West Wing during the Trump-Pence administration. And... Uh, and he goes on, they would know. He goes, we want to know in real time who brought and left cocaine uh, uh, on a table in the residence in the White House, but I'm not holding my breath. Again, government is so corrupt. Everything is corrupt. So I, I don't think I've ever, I, I could pretty much say that definitively. This, this government, our government is totally corrupted on almost every level. The presidency, the FBI, the CIA, the IRS, the FDA, the CDC, and the entire mainstream news media. It's all corrupted, and Americans know it. That's why 75% of Americans believe the country is going down the wrong path. They see this. I mean, you can only lie to people so much before they know what's really happening. So uh, Mark Victor Hansen, he's a regular commentator on Fox, and he's a journalist. And he recently wrote an article July 5th for, um, uh, I forgot what it was, The Daily Signal. And he talks about how this issue with the IRS could hit people, the average American, and really not only cause the end of the Biden administration, I mean, he believes that the, uh, the title of his uh, op-ed is this scandal will lead to the Biden's convictions for serious felonies. Well, I think he's more confident about that than I am, but, but listen to what he had to say. He said, President Joe Biden, the Biden grifting conglomerate, the Department of Justice and the FBI, under its fourth consecutive weaponized director, are in danger of subverting the American system of law. They are, in various ways, undermining the tradition of self-reported income tax computation and voluntary compliance. Our tax institutions, of course, are based on the real deterrence of a disinterested, uncompromised internal revenue service. Without it, income revenues to the United States are existentially threatened. So what he's saying here is that if people lose confidence in an impartial tax-collecting authority, 
they're going to stop paying their taxes. They're going to say, how is it I have to pay mine when elites, especially Democrat elites, get away with it? And until now, the IRS itself has never been under such a shadow of corruption. Yeah, you know, they were uh, Lois Lerner, remember her? Who was not granting tax-free status to uh, um, uh, conservative uh, uh, groups back in the 2016 election or even before that. That was during the Obama administration. Uh, but this is, this, this is really, you know, uh, obvious to the average American that Hunter Biden got away with murder here. Um, so he goes on to say, has it been in the past ever found to have applied so blatantly and deliberately one standard of tax enforcement to elites and quite another to everyday Americans? Again, if that charge of unequal treatment and tax compliance were to be proven true, then Humpty Dumpty like the entire American system of revenue collection would shatter. In other words, millions of Americans might shrug if Joe Biden, president of the United States, and his criminally-minded son can get away with avoiding millions of dollars in taxes, then should not I, a nobody, at least have the right to avoid hundreds of dollars of taxes? And he's right. You know, like I said, he said people, you know, are, are, are removed from uh, foreign corruption, uh, drug abuse, uh, you know, most of us, that uh, doesn't touch us. But certainly taxes touch everybody. And now you're messing, you know, you're messing with everybody. Uh, and people know that there's a two-tier justice system. And certainly when it comes to taxes, obviously, uh, it's a two-tiered system as well. So he goes on to say, the current president of the United States, despite his monotonous calls for the well-off to pay their fair share, likely has deliberately connived to avoid taxes on sizable amounts of unreported foreign taxable income. In the case of his son, likely is an unneeded adverb, because we know for a fact he did. I mean, obviously he's been charged with it. He pled guilty to it. And he goes on and on, but, but he makes a really good point here that, you know, you know, a lot of other things, corruption and stuff, it's kind of uh, esoteric to a lot of people, but not paying taxes. And uh, he goes on to say, too, that um, the greatest damage the Bidens have done is to the nation. He said, Joe Biden's own past lucrative financial dealings with suspect Chinese interests with connections to the ruling Chinese Communist Party cast a shadow over current American foreign policy itself. In other words, treason. I mean, what did the Chinese expect to get from these millions of dollars? that were paid to the Biden family. Maybe look the other way uh, when they're uh, stealing our technology. Maybe look the other way uh, uh, when they attack Taiwan. Uh, maybe uh, look the other way when they're taking advantage of our trade deals. Look away when they're trying to dethrone the US dollar as the world's reserve currency. In Ukraine, where uh, the Bidens got millions of dollars from Burisma and who else, who knows what else, what if we're backing more with Russia just because of that? Because Zelensky will release information and evidence of their corruption. 
which might bring us to World War III and possible uh, nuclear thermonuclear war over corruption, bribery, compromise of the U.S. government at its highest level. This is not small potatoes, people. And it's not even about the money. It's about the security of the United States. But you know what I think may even resonate more with the American people than even the tax situation? Is this this issue with the granddaughter, Navy. So apparently... Hunter Biden had a one-night stand with a stripper. Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. Got her pregnant. And just refused to have anything to do with it. And, you know, Joe Biden says he has six grandchildren. and She's the seventh. And the sad thing about it is she knows that the president of the United States is her grandfather. And she's very excited about that. But she's she's like a non-person to the Bidens. You know, part of the settlement with the child support was that the child can't take the Biden name. You want to talk about being shunned in society? <laughs> I mean, this poor little girl. Uh, I don't know if she has much any contact with her father. Uh, but I couldn't imagine myself disavowing a grandchild because it was born out of wedlock. Still my grandchild. And this is what resonates. And I think this is going to resonate a lot with women. And uh, who's the girl on the five, the liberal girl, uh, Tavlov, her name is, I forgot her first name. But she even came out and said, this is this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. To disavow her. And, you know, as a mother, you know, she's saying, I, I can't believe this. And I wonder how this is going to resonate with women and even Democrat women. I think that may be the that may be the thing that, that brings him down politically anyway. In a major blow against government censorship, uh, a federal judge this week um, said that forbid the government to interact with social media companies in an effort to censor anybody they deem to be misinformation or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that was a big deal. I mean, that is a big deal. I mean, your government colludes with social media platforms to just censor anybody who doesn't agree with the government. I mean, this is this is Soviet Union at its worst. Uh, this is what happens in China. Whether it's vaccines, uh, uh, anything, uh, election integrity, transgender stuff, which we'll talk about in a second. And uh, you would think that, you know, most people would think that's a good thing, right? Uh, prevent the government from colluding with Facebook and Twitter and all these different social media platforms to influence elections. Uh, but not to Democrats. Uh, Democrats think it's a good thing. Because misinformation is so bad out there. Uh, we have to we have to monitor it and, and, and censor it because it's so dangerous. Conspiracy theories. Uh, <laughs> hey, look, I take, I know this firsthand. I'm banned from YouTube forever. They just shut me off one day for something I said a year and a half prior. Somebody found it, 
some bot or something and reported me because I challenged the election in 2020. Or I, I, I challenged uh, whether or not anybody should get the vax because it was experimental and there was not enough testing done on it and we don't know what it is. We didn't know if it was safe and effective and I was right. It's neither. I saw something uh, and I haven't verified it, but uh, uh, I found that um, 2019 and 2020, you know, 2020 is when, um, you know, COVID started, right? Uh, the average number of breast cancers in the country was something like 24,000. Actually, it was 14,900 those two years, right around there. There was very little variation. And then in 2021, it went to 24,000. Well, what happened in 2021? Well, people started taking some uh, gene-altering medicine. But that's nothing. You know how many, in the first six months of 2023, you know how many cases of breast cancer there are? Again, I haven't verified that, but it, it was in an article, and, and uh, I trust the source. It's 296,000 cases of breast cancer in the United States. And that's only in six months. How do you go from 14,900 the 24,000 to, if on this pace, it would be over 500,000. Well, what changed? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to investigate that this week, because if that's true, we've got a big problem here, obviously. Uh, what else do we have here? What other craziness do we have? Okay. It looks like, again, I've said this before, uh, we're hell bent now on um, uh, we're hell bent on going to war with Russia. Just two little blurbs that came out this week, and I don't get it. I mean, it just makes no sense. Uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg doesn't see a problem with internationally banned cluster munitions, only when the U.S. or its allies deploy them. Apparently, so the United States, after uh, much deliberation internally has decided to provide Ukraine with cluster bombs. Now, cluster bombs are banned. 120 countries around the world, including us, have stated that they are uh, unethical in war. So what these things are is they, uh, it's like a bomb comes down, blows up, and it, it, it disperses 240 mini-bombs. Around, I, I read that it was uh, a circumference of the, the length of two football fields. Now, I assume that if you do that in a, a troop formation, it would be very effective. But the problem they say is that more civilians get killed by it because long after the conflict is over, those mini bombs are still going to be on the ground and kids could step on them or whatever. Because there's many that are unexploded. So we're, we're giving them to Ukraine. Uh, uh, that's a good thing. I'm sure uh, um, Russia will respond uh, in kind uh, as this becomes escalated even further. Um, other news that came out late last week, Friday, um, 
uh, NATO summit to reaffirm Ukraine will become a future member. Uh, NATO chief, again, Jen Stoltenberg, said Friday that the alliance is expected to reaffirm Ukraine's future path to NATO membership. He addressed a news conference in anticipation of the NATO leaders' summit in the Lithuanian capital Vilnius on July 11th and 12th and emphasized the 31-member group is prepared, preparing to send a clear message, NATO stands united and Russia aggression will not pay off. He previewed that leaders gathered at the summit are ready to reaffirm that Ukraine will become a member of NATO and unite on how to bring Ukraine closer to its goal. So why did this war start in the first place? It started because Russia did not want Ukraine to become part of NATO and have the NATO alliance right at the doorstep of Russia. Just like I think we'd be concerned if Russia was on the doorstep of America through Canada or Mexico. Uh, and that's what started the war. And now we're going to fulfill that. There's just no talk of ending this thing. There's no talk of peace. I've never seen anything like it. All the talk and everything that's been done so far, by the way, was sending, oh, that's $800 million uh, uh, further expenditure on Ukraine is these cluster bombs. Um. Just unbelievable. It's like they are taking us to World War III. That's what they want. Very, very, very disturbing. The leadership uh, in our country, and let's face it, the United States drives all this, NATO. I don't know who it is. Is it the military-industrial complex? Is it the neocons? I don't know. But I'm telling you, we're on a path uh, that's not very good. I mean, this war could stop immediately if we just say, look, you know, Ukraine is not going to be a member of NATO. They're going to be neutral. This war would end tomorrow. And Trump knows that. Uh, and I think be very, he'll be very successful if he campaigns on ending this war and the threat of World War III. Unfortunately, I don't know if we can make it to a Donald Trump presidency before World War III is in full swing. But he comes out and he says he could stop it. He could stop it and... Um, 24 hours, and I bet he could. And for all of our sakes, hopefully he'll be the president to do it. All right, what other insane uh, gender stuff is going on here? Oh, jeez. Just when you think, the world could get crazier. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, actually has issued official guidance for non-binary people on how to chest feed infants. Chest feed. This latest woke lunacy isn't just a disturbing policy. In a larger sense, it demonstrates how powerful government institutions have been co-opted on behalf of a larger, elite-driven cultural revolution. Uh, so it goes on to say, uh, th this is what the CDC website says. Some transgender parents who have had breast top surgery may wish to breastfeed or chest feed, a term used by some transgender and non-binary parents, their infants. Healthcare providers working with these families should be familiar with medical, emotional, and social aspects of gender transitions to provide optimal family-centered care and meet the, uh, the nutritional needs of the infant. So we're supposed to believe that the secretions produced by these men, they're men, 
that want to chest feed, um, some of them on some serious hormones, um, that it's entirely safe for instance to, to do this. Uh, this is ridiculous. I mean, are we live in, yes, we are. Yes, Lou, we are living in an insane world. I mean, this is lunacy. This is your government. This is not some crazy left-wing thing. And um, they're using babies as props for some kind of twisted sexual fetish that these people have. And your government, the CDC, is just validating it. It's just ridiculous. Ugh. How could this be healthy for a baby? I, I, I just don't get it. Chest feeding. Really. All right, two Democratic governors, uh, one in um, Louisiana and one in North Carolina, have vetoed their Republican legislature's bills uh, to outlaw mutilating, mutilating and gender-changing um, surgery and drugs for minors. Um, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, a Democrat, has vetoed a bill that was meant to protect children from transgender, gender-changed surgeries and other procedures like giving kids cross-sex hormones. The bill, 648, known as the Stop Harming Our Kids Act, was passed by Republican-controlled state legislature along party lines in early June. Why is it that Democrats don't ever vote for sane policies? Every one of them. Every Democrat in these legislations vote against this stuff. It's common sense stuff. What is wrong with the minds and, and the morals of Democrats? Someone, somebody email me and tell me, if you're a Democrat, why this stuff make sense to you? All this stuff, abortion up to the last day. That does not outrage one Democrat. They think it's good. Every Democrat believes that um, we should have affirmative action in college, which is racism. It's insane. There's, there's nobody with any morals, any ethics in the Democratic Party anymore. Who are these people? Who are you people? So the legislature, who represents the people of the state of Louisiana and North Carolina, voted to outlaw this. It does such harm to children. They're too young to know what they want in life. And when they have regret and try to go back, it's, it's, it's almost impossible for them. It, it's just um, crazy. Um, and people keep voting for these Democrats. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't understand the world we're living in. It's like I went to bed one day, and I woke up the next morning, and it was a Twilight Zone episode. Really? Uh, what else do we have here? Um, how about this one? Army veteran fired for filming shoplifters, despite helping law enforcement catch the suspect. So this guy, a veteran, Army veteran, 
uh, he saw a shoplifter stealing, I think it was $500 worth of, uh, I think it was cleaning products or laundry detergent or something. So he followed them to their car and he's just filming them. And he's saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is not right. You don't have the right to come in here and just steal this stuff. Then they had put foil over their license plate. So he pulled the foil off and recorded the license plate number. Police were able to catch the purse, the people doing that. And then he gets fired for violating the store's policy against interfering with shoplifters. What? Again, we live in an Alice in Wonderland. I mean, what did the guy do wrong? Uh, if it was my business, I, I want that to happen. I mean, you go into some stores in the city, I mean, everything's on the lock and key now because everything will be stolen. And you can't do anything about it. Should, should we help them uh, load it into their car? Again, it's one thing after the other. Insanity. All right, you saw this week that uh, major riots have broken out in, um, in France across the entire country as uh, African immigrants who were allowed in without restriction uh, have revolted against the government. They burned down over a thousand buildings. It's gone on for six or seven nights. It's still going on. A thousand have been arrested. A numerous amount of French police have been injured. Uh, a gigantic library in Marseille was burnt to the ground uh, with uh, thousands of rare documents and books in it. Uh, it's crazy. And that's what happens when you have unbridled illegal immigration into your country. And that's what's going to happen here. Now, these are Africans. They have not been assimilated into the society there. They don't speak the language. Uh, they're in conclaves that are no-go territory for most of the French people. Uh, and now they're revolting against the government. So uh, how is uh, Macron going to respond to this? Well, this article came out this week. Fr French cops can now secretly activate phone cameras, microphones, and GPS to, stay, uh, to spy on citizens. Now, I want you to listen to this, because this is probably happening here. If it's not happening, it can happen at any time. Cops in France have been granted the authority to remotely activate a suspect's cell phone camera, microphone, and GPS after the passage of a provision in a wider justice reform bill on Wednesday night. The bill allows the geolocation, geolocation of crime suspects covering other devices like laptops, cars, and connected devices just as it could be remotely activated to record sound and images of people suspected of terror offenses, as well as delinquency and organized crime. According to French digital rights advocate group, the provisions raise serious concerns over infringements of fundamental liberties. Um, the group called it part of a slide into heavy-handed security. Um, they go on to say we're we're far away. We're not far away from the totalitarianism of 1984. And uh, of course, the government says we need this. This will this will protect people, right? It'll it'll save lives. Do you think the government's not going to use it for nefarious purposes? Political opposition coming to a town near you, a city near you sometime soon, I'm sure. We live in a, a society of censorship, surveillance, 
um, uh, injustice, reverse racism, gender dysphoria, uh, and it just gets nuts and nuts. And we'll continue to bring it to you here on The Financial Physician. Our podcast is up uh, by 9 a.m. Sunday morning. Our major podcast starting this week will be doing a shorter midweek podcast. We'll, we'll bring you some updates on things that have happened uh, since I taped this program on, uh, on Friday and Saturday. So you want to go to, uh, when you go to the podcast, uh, follow the show so you'll be notified instantly uh, by email every time I update podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. My web, my uh, website is thefinancialphysician.com. My email address is lou at thefinancialphysician.com. You want to come in for a complimentary, uh, no obligation financial review and consultation. My office number is 732-905-8100. 732-905-8100. Have a great week. And remember, I'm not far right. I'm just right so far. See you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.